you pray with me, please? Father, in a hopeless, helpless world, we thank you that you, by your grace and mercy and kindness, through your perfect plan and your perfect Son, have one eternal hope for all who trust in him. We thank you for being the God, precisely the God we need you to be. Thank you for being a God who satisfies with your love and your grace and your kindness. And we pray right now as we open your word and hear from it the glory and grace of your Son that Jesus would be made much of, that your Spirit would work in our hearts, that he would give us minds to understand, eyes to see, hearts to love, hands and feet to obey, and knees to bow in worship before the one true God. So now may you love your people well through me as I open your word to them. And may we leave this place thinking higher thoughts of Jesus and falling deeper in love with him. I pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I invite you to open your copies of the scriptures this morning to Ruth chapter 2. That's Old Testament, Ruth chapter 2. If you're new with us or if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we would love for you to take a Bible from the seat back of the pew in front of you and open that to page 263. 263, that's the page we'll be on this morning. And as you're finding your place there in Ruth chapter 2, let me just say that um, we need to be thankful for the men and women and young people that make this morning possible and every Sunday morning possible. It's our tech crew, it's our PowerPoint crew, it's our video crew, it's our light crew. So let's show our appreciation to them. They work tirelessly week in and week out doing things that we don't even notice because they do it so well. So thank you to our audio-visual, our tech crew, our video crew. Thank you so much. And as you're finding your place there in Ruth chapter 2, I hope you have your seatbelts fastened. Everybody have your seatbelts fastened this morning? Because Ruth's story is beginning to take off. Ruth, who's a Moabite, has come to Bethlehem with her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi. And for Naomi, she's coming back home after a 10-year train wreck in Moab, where her husband and her two sons have died. And now Ruth and Naomi, both being widows, are being forced to fend for themselves just to try to make ends meet. And this is where the story really gets good. Because here in chapter 2, we discover that God has providentially prepared a godly man, a worthy man named Boaz for Ruth. Precisely for Ruth. God has Boaz in just the right place at just the right time with just the right family ties to be her knight in shining armor. Love is in the air. And guys, this is your cue that Wednesday is Valentine's Day. 
That's the day after the day after tomorrow. I don't know how much more plain I can make it. I'm just putting it out there because I care about your health and well-being. Just like Boaz does with Ruth. Because as we dive back into their story in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth has begun gleaning in Boaz's field. She's been there all morning. Now remember that she has no idea that the field she's been gleaning in belongs to Boaz. And she has no idea that he's a relative of her late father-in-law, Elimelech. And that makes him, Boaz, the perfect match for Ruth. And the deeper we get into her story, the clearer that will become. So let's pick up the story in Ruth chapter 2. Now I'm going to read beginning with verse 1 to give us a clearer picture of the context and the story, although I'll be preaching this morning only from verses 8 through 17. If you missed any of these messages on Ruth, I would encourage you to hop on our YouTube channel and check out those messages. Verse 1 of Ruth 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go glean, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And so she set out and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord Jehovah God be with you. And they answered, The Lord Jehovah God bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman, the one who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And then Boaz went to Ruth. He said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor? Why have I found grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord Jehovah God repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, let's eat, eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. 
And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And this is the word of our God. Oh, this is so good. I've been so excited to preach this to you this morning because the big idea in this scene is that we are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. We've been blessed by God to be a blessing to others like Boaz in this story. So like Boaz, God has lavished his grace upon us and in doing so he has called us to lavish grace upon others. You see, our God is not stingy with his grace. He is not like my youngest brother used to be with that last chocolate chip cookie. I mean, I had called that cookie. I had dibs on that cookie. And when mom made him tear it in half, his half was three times the size of my half. That is not our God. Listen to this from Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And then when his lavish grace takes root in our hearts, it overflows from our hearts into the lives of others. That's what God is calling us to do with his grace. As he is not stingy, we are not stingy because Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says we are to be imitators of God. Like he has been lavish with his grace with us, we are to be lavish with grace toward others. We are to be imitators of God as his beloved children We're to walk in love as Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so, if you would like a concise definition of love, here it is. Love is lavish grace in action. It reminds me of 12 years ago when when our family had moved into a new house that shared a driveway with our new neighbor. Her name was Ellen. And Ellen had a reputation, we discovered later, Ellen had a reputation in the neighborhood of being a bit cranky. I was going to ask anybody ever had a cranky neighbor, but I won't ask you to raise your hands this morning. Her name was Ellen. And, and she had lost her husband a few years before we moved in beside her. And she had turned to alcohol to comfort her. And not too long after we moved in, Our daughters left their bikes out in the driveway. Remember, it's a shared driveway. We didn't know they had left their bikes there until later in the day when Ellen stopped me in the driveway and said, very sternly, with her finger pointed at me. Now, remember, we're new here. This is kind of the the first time we've met her. Remember that we share a driveway. And this morning, I had to move your girls' bikes out of the way. If it happens again, I will throw their bikes into your front yard. Now, remember, this is southern Illinois where people are supposed to be kind and loving and nice. <laughs> I apologized to Ellen. I assured her that we would instruct our girls to keep their bikes 
off the driveway. And then over the next six months, we worked hard at showing grace to Ellen. I cleared her driveway and sidewalks of snow. Our church youth group came and raked her leaves in the fall. And we kept the bikes off the driveway. And one day, she and Joanna were chatting in that driveway, and she asked Joanna this question. Why are you so kind to me? Since my husband died, nobody has been this kind to me. And Joanna responded, it's because God has been kind to us in sending his son Jesus to die for us. And because he has shown kindness to us, we want to show kindness to you. Joanna nailed it. She preached the best sermon ever right there in our driveway. It's the same sermon that's being preached to us right here in the fields of Bethlehem. It's grace upon grace upon grace flowing into the life of Ruth through Boaz. And it all begins with protecting grace. It's verse 8. And perhaps it would do us well this morning to kind of just put ourselves in Ruth's sandals. She's young. She's single. And from the clues Boaz is giving, she's beautiful. And as a foreigner scrounging for food in an unfamiliar field, in an unfamiliar place, surrounded by unfamiliar men, she is vulnerable. So as Boaz approaches her, he knows that she doesn't know what his intentions are because she doesn't know what kind of man he is. And that's why he carefully crafts his words to her, his introductory words. He doesn't say, yo, babe, you don't know who I am, but I own the field you've been gleaning in all day, so will you be paying with cash or check? Or would you like to make other arrangements? No, his big concern is that she knows that he will protect her. And that's why his words are full of grace. They're dripping with grace here. When he says to her, listen, I know that you must feel so vulnerable here. You've probably heard stories of men abusing women like you in fields like this. So right up front here, I want you to know that I'm not here to take advantage of you. I'm here to watch out for you. Like you were my own daughter. But I can't guarantee your safety in another man's field. So don't go wandering off. And because there's safety in numbers, keep close to the young women who are gleaning in my, in my field. You'll be safe here. I've given my guys strict instructions that you are off limits. They aren't going to harass you. They aren't going to hurt you. And so when you get thirsty, don't be afraid to make your way over there to the well. And grab a water jar. My guys have already drawn the water. It's there for you. Now, all of that would be a big deal to Ruth in this situation. But I think it would be the words about the water that would really get her attention and shock her. Because in these words, Boaz is turning a cultural norm on its head. You see, in those days, women drew water for men and foreigners drew water for Jews. And if we were shooting a movie 
This is where we would fade out the scene and the faces of Ruth and Boaz would morph into the faces of a Samaritan woman and an Israelite man standing beside a well in Samaria. And that Jewish man says to that Samaritan woman, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me to give you a drink because the water that I will give you will quench your thirst forever. That Jewish man is Jesus standing beside that well with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 offering eternal life to her by giving her a drink from the well of his grace even though she is a foreigner and an outsider and that gets that Samaritan's woman that Samaritan woman's attention because Jesus is turning a cultural norm on its head just like Boaz is doing with Ruth here in this field in Boaz's field she is a Moabite woman who will drink water that's been drawn by Jewish men. Men who won't harm her or harass her, but will serve her. And Ruth is blown away because that is so countercultural in her day, just as it is in our day, where so often the vulnerable are not protected, they're exploited. You want to know how seriously God takes the exploitation of the vulnerable? Listen to this from Psalm 10. The eyes of the wicked man stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor and he draws them into his, his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and they fall by his might. He says in his heart, no big deal, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see this. You know, maybe, maybe these verses are very real to you and very personal to you. Because you are a woman who has suffered at the hands of a man who was not a Boaz for you. He did not protect you. He preyed upon you and exploited you. It may have been years ago, but you haven't forgotten. And I want you to hear this morning that God has not forgotten either. God knows. God sees God cares. God never forgets. And that's why Psalm 10 goes on to say, O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of this earth may strike terror no more. God loves to serve justice on behalf of the vulnerable. And one of the ways God calls us as Christians to shine as lights in a dark world is to protect the vulnerable. And so I want you to know, as your lead pastor, I want you to be assured that I will always, always, always lead our church and our school to protect the vulnerable, especially the young.
I will always encourage us as Jesus followers to do the same for the unborn and for the fatherless and for the widow. It's what God calls us to do in Isaiah 1, verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So Bethel, let's be a people who are known for protecting the vulnerable like Boaz does here with Ruth. It is such lavish countercultural grace that she falls on her face at the feet of Boaz. Right there in the field. Now, guys, I'm pretty sure that wasn't your future wife's response when you first spoke to her. Me neither. But it is Ruth's response to Boaz because she's blown away by the grace of Boaz. Why? Why have I found favor? Literally, why have I found grace in your eyes, Boaz? Why would you even take notice of me? Who am I? I'm just a foreigner foraging for food. Ruth, 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 I I know who you are. I've been told what you've done, how you've cared for and committed yourself to your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Now let me interrupt Boaz right here. Because what he says here about the death of Ruth's husband isn't necessarily germane to the argument he is making. And so I would like to think that when he, what he says here about the death of her husband is code to Ruth for this. I want you to know that I know you're available. I can't prove that. But it's interesting that he brings her former husband, her late husband, into the, the conversation. Okay, so that was free. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Because Boaz continues here. He says, I know that you left your mom and dad and, and your homeland. I know that you've come to live among us, even though you did not know us. So may Jehovah God repay you for all that you have done, and and may the God of Israel fully reward you, the God under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, I need to clarify something here so that we understand what Boaz is saying here. Boaz is saying that because Ruth has come to take refuge by God's grace under God's wings, that he will reward her and he will show grace to her and he will protect her and provide for her and he will be all the promise to her that she needs. Boaz is not saying that Ruth's commitment to Naomi has so impressed God that has earned her favor with God. Now, let me repeat that because I want you to get this. Boaz is not saying that Ruth's commitment to Naomi has so impressed God that it has earned her favor with God. But you know, that's what a lot of people believe today. Let's just be honest. They believe that salvation is a team effort. It's a two-way street. I do my part. God does his part. No, salvation is not that at all. Salvation is by grace alone, which by definition is a one-way street. And that's why in Bethlehem, God comes to us. 
Because we could not come to him on our side of the street. We couldn't even meet him in the middle of the street. Because Ephesians 2 verse 1 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were on a dead end street. Lying there lifeless. And Jesus comes to us. To die for us. To rescue us by paying the price for our sins in full. It's all him on his side of the street. Doing what only he can do. So it's unearnable, undeservable, unmeritable grace. Lavished upon all who will trust in him. It is, salvation is from beginning to end. It is all him. It is all grace. And that's why Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. It is not of works, lest any of us should boast. And so salvation is never about who I am and what I do for him. It's about who Jesus is and what he has done for me. And so when I come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, he, like with Ruth, refuges me under his wings, forever protecting, protecting me and providing for me and being all the promise I need. This is our God. He is a savior by nature. He is gracious by nature he sent Jesus to be the one we could never be is he your savior have you come and taken refuge under his wings by faith alone because of his grace alone the Bible says in Romans 10 verse 9 that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved Galatians 3 says that we are all the children of God by faith in Jesus, period. Have you believed? Have you repented? Have you come to, to find refuge under the wings of your God? And when you get that God's grace could never be earned then you will echo Ruth's words to Boaz here in verse 13 when she says, I have found grace in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I'm not one of your servants, I'm just an outsider. Now, now this may sound right here a, a bit over the top to us, like, like Ruth is somehow flattering Boaz. I mean, she's probably still bowing her face to the ground. She's calling him Lord. It's just over the top, Right? Well, hold on. Remember that just back in verse 2 of Ruth chapter 2, that she has begun her day in search of somebody who would perhaps show her grace and let her glean in their field. And now it's like she's saying, I was hoping for someone, I was hoping for anyone who would give me just enough to survive but today I've met a man who hasn't just taken notice of me. He's lavished, we, lavished me with more grace than I could have ever dreamed. But what I find most intriguing about her words here is that Ruth still doesn't know who Boaz is. 
She doesn't know that he has family ties to her that will qualify him to be her husband. She won't discover that until down in verse 20 of Ruth 2. So she isn't working some angle here. She isn't flattering Boaz here. She is genuinely thankful here because she is sincerely humble here. And like back in chapter 1, when Naomi is blown away by Ruth's humility, Boaz now is. Notice that she has left him speechless. And that's another reason I believe in the authenticity of God's word because here in verse 13, just like in real life, the woman has the final word. Okay, let me repeat that one more time. Okay, you you, you get that later, okay? This is authentic. This is real. She says that final word to Boaz and he's speechless. But he isn't done. He isn't just going to shower Ruth with protecting grace in his field. He's going to lavish her with providing grace at his table at dinner time. It's mid-afternoon now, and as the reapers are making their way in from the field to the table, Boaz notices that Ruth is not with them. He's not happy about that. He wants to have dinner with her. And so he calls out to her, hey, 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 Ruth, join us for dinner. Come and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Now, I would love to think here that, that Boaz invites her to sit, not just beside the reapers at the table, like the text says, but right beside him at the table. I don't think that's unreasonable, because notice that verse 14 says that he passes her the roasted grain. So there you have it. It's officially their first date. It's a lovely romantic meal over roasted grain and wine surrounded by a group of sweaty guys just in from the field. It doesn't get any better than this because it's more than just a meal. It's a picture. It's a symbol. Boaz isn't just offering Ruth dinner. He isn't just providing Ruth dinner. He is serving Ruth dinner. The one foreign woman who began the day hoping to find some food, just any food, is being served so much food that even when she's full, there's enough to fill a doggy bag to take home. But before she goes home, It's back out to the fields for more gleaning. And as she's heading out to the field, Boaz pulls his guys aside and says, Hey, hey guys, don't force her to glean in the corners of the field. Let her her come right behind you and glean among the sheaves that you've already gathered. Let her have the pick of the crop. And don't, don't embarrass her. Don't make it obvious. Just casually pull out some of the grain from the bundles and nonchalantly let it drop for her to glean. But what's crazy here about what Boaz says is that Boaz knows that God's law requires him only to leave the corners of the field for Ruth. But when the grace, the lavish grace of God fills a heart, doing the bare minimum is never enough. It's not enough in our marriage and in our parenting. 
We'll go a thousand extra miles to show grace to our spouse. We'll forego our weekly golf outing with the guys to set aside money to take our wife to her favorite vacation destination. We'll be generous with our time. So even after getting home late from work, we'll take an interest in our kids and their world. We'll review their Awana verses with them. We'll help them with their homework. We will make time for them even when we're tired and spent, we'll dig down deep for more grace to show them. And we'll do the same with guests here at church. We'll welcome them warmly. We'll show them where the restrooms are. We won't just point to the restrooms. We will will accompany them to the door of that restroom. And then we'll show them where our kids' ministry meets and where the goodies are out in the welcome center. We'll do what Boaz does with Ruth here. We'll welcome the stranger. And we'll welcome them as one of us by inviting them to sit with us. We'll introduce them to others rather than leaving them to flounder on the fringes alone. We'll go above and beyond Everything that could be expected because we are the children of a generous and welcoming God who did not ask us to meet Him in the middle. He came all the way to us to lavish us with His grace for us. Not just one-time grace, but ongoing grace. It's promising grace. Or more precisely, because that I use that because it fit my outline, but let me be more precise here. It's the promise of future grace. It's God's promise of grace that is sufficient, not just for today's needs, but for tomorrow's needs, and the next day's needs, and every day's needs. It's Philippians 4, verse 19. My God shall supply all your needs, not just all quantitatively, not just every one of your needs, but all your needs chronologically. All your needs, all day, every day, He will supply all our needs according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Our God is a lavishly gracious God. Amen? And it's the promise of future grace that Ruth is holding in her hands at the end of a very long but very good day. It's an ephah of barley. That's nearly six gallons, 50 pounds of food, five shopping bags full of barley. But what she's carrying home isn't just a 10-day supply of food for her and Naomi. It's a promise. It's Boaz's promise that she is holding in our, what she's holding in her hands isn't a one-and-done thing. It's a taste of what's to come because there's plenty more where that came from. There always is with God's grace. It's the gift that keeps on giving. There's always enough grace for every need you have and every difficulty you face. And so when you think you've reached the bottom of the barrel of God's grace to you, you haven't, which means that when you think you've reached the bottom of the barrel in showing grace to others, you haven't. 
God will give you more grace to bear with that cranky neighbor or coworker again. He'll give you more grace to forgive the one who hurt you again. He'll give you more grace to pray for that wayward daughter or son again. God's grace will never run out on you. It'll never run out for you. It'll always be enough for you, not just to do the right thing, but to do the lavishly gracious thing. And so the takeaway from this text and this scene is this. In order to be generous like God, we must first be satisfied in God. Listen, until we believe that His grace will always be enough for us, we will be stingy and tight-fisted in showing grace to others. We'll be like the orphans we've heard about. Orphans who are welcomed into a loving home where their needs are being met. And and yet, after months of being lavished with grace upon grace, those orphans are still stuffing food into their pockets at mealtime because they are fearful they won't have enough for tomorrow. Listen, please. We are not God's orphans. We are God's children. And he is a good, good father. He's the good shepherd of Psalm 23. And when you read Psalm 23 with Ruth's story in mind, I think you can begin to hear echoes of protection and provision that have sustained her through gleaning in Boaz's field and drinking at Boaz's well, and eating at Boaz's table, all of it with the promise that there's more to come and that the best is yet to come. So maybe, just maybe, Ruth's great-grandson, King David, isn't just telling us his story in Psalm 23. Maybe he hears echoes of Ruth's story when he writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me as a Moabite in the presence of my enemies, the Jews. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You hear it. This is our lavishly gracious God. He is enough to satisfy us forever. It really is grace upon grace. And that's why we are blessed to be a blessing. Just like Boaz has been for Ruth. And just like Ruth is about to be for Naomi. But that's next week. Until then. Be a blessing to others 
by being lavish in your grace toward others because God has been and always will be lavish with his grace to you. Amen. Father, may you take your word and do with it as you please. May you accomplish your eternal purposes in the lives of your eternal people this morning. And for those who are yet to become your children, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, open their eyes and their hearts to the glory and grace of Jesus and the hope of the gospel. That salvation is not a two-way street where we meet him in the middle. It's a one-way street because we were dead in our trespasses and sins on a dead-end street. And may we have people in this room this morning or those watching online who will, by your grace, come and find grace and refuge themselves under the shadow of your wings. In Jesus' name, amen.